From Chicago, welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry. We got contacted uh, by CalRAM, actually, um, who was doing a project with, with Northrop and some other folks uh, and wanted to know if we had the capability to service finish uh, TIE 6-4. So we were like, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been doing TIE 6-4, you know, air and compressor blades for, for 20 years. So no problem. Um, we were maybe a little flippant in that response because these were TIE 6-4 EVM components, right? And we were used to, you know, precision milled components coming with probably a 16-24 microwave RA. Um, so when these, these bars came in that looked like kind of like, I don't know, honing tools or something, we, we, we were a little shocked. That was Justin Michaud. Justin, the CEO and president of REM Surface Engineering. They specialize in finishing manufactured parts and joins the show today to talk about the history of the company as well as their work in 3D printing. Justin has worked in all segments of the business and has specific domain expertise in the metal AM industry, the wind turbine gearbox OEM and repair industries, and the general gear industry. Justin serves in the American Gear Manufacturers Association Immersion Technology Committee and is a graduate of the University of Notre Dame. Before we get started, head over to www.3degreescompany.com and subscribe to the podcast. Remember, you can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcast, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Stitcher. All right, Justin, thank you so much for joining the show. I'm excited for the conversation. I think we've got a lot of ground to cover in, in this episode. So um, I like to, as you know, get started in the very beginning with kind of where you got your your start kind of growing up. Um, and I think in this case, we've got kind of a family story to weave into to your own career story. So let, let's jump in in there from the beginning. Sure. Yeah. So, um, I, so I'm third generation uh, family uh, here at, at REM Service Engineering. So yeah, it's, it's always been a part of my life, you know, going back to as a kid, just, you know, evenings, weekends, um, you know, just, just being there, being around the company, you know, sweeping floors, mowing lawns, doing that kind of stuff. So um, it was always something that was part of, you know, kind of my, my day-to-day life and, and something that I was always interested in because it, it was sort of like a, you know, it's a science-y type of persuasion. That was always where a lot of my interest lay early, early on in school and, and whatnot. So um, coming, out of, coming out of college, you know, had, had other, other options and things like that, but just, you know, the idea of, of working for the family company and, and, and pushing it forward was, was meaningful to me and, and something I, I wanted to keep, you know, keep doing. I like the idea that, it's, you know, it's a, it's a real technology offering. It's a, it's a value add type application. Um, you know, you're not uh, you're going out there and selling widgets or what have you. Not there's anything wrong with that, but I, I like that element of you know, like solving problems, helping customers, creating value. So that was that was that was how I got uh, started with with, with REM. Um, you know, worked my way up through just all the different aspects of the company, from you know, manufacturing, accounting, service processing, sales, um, research, all that, and and, and eventually stepped into the, you know, took over from my father, and and now running the company have been for about five years now. Um, so yes, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been, it's been rewarding. It's nice. Yeah, obviously there's a, you know, drawbacks cause you, you never, you never leave it. You know, it's five, five o'clock. It doesn't mean that the, the problems go away very much. You, you're still thinking about them and they're just waiting for the next morning. Um, you know, again, obviously everybody has that, but maybe a little more so knowing that it all kind of falls on my shoulders, but it's, uh, it's been a very good experience for me. And so let's go back to the beginning. How did your grandfather start the company and, and where are you guys based again? Just put some context around kind of the, the early, early days. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the company's headquartered out of uh, Southington, Connecticut. Um, and it's, uh, it was it was founded there um, in 1965. My grandfather had been uh, working um, in the, the research and sales side for especially chemical manufacturer out there. Uh, they were supporting the plating industry in New England at the time. Um, and just, you know, kind of one thing led to another. He decided he wanted to go out on his own, be independent. So he started the company. Um, and we moved from like the first little small resident location to the location where our headquarters are still, I think after a couple of years, um, gone through multiple expansions. Uh, but you know, the company, it looks a lot different now than, than it did then, obviously. So um, that was a, our single location. Um, and as I referenced, it was you know, supporting, you know, alkaline cleaners, specialty cleaners to support the decorative plating application in New England, which over time, a lot of that kind of went away. There's still some of it in that area, but a lot of it went overseas. Um, and that was, you know, fortunately, my father, when he came into the company to, to, to work with it and eventually took over from, from his father, my grandfather, uh, sort of stumbled upon this, this technology of uh, chemically accelerated vibratory finishing. You know, this, this premise where you take mass finishing, which is typically just an abrasive scouring type of, of process. Um, and rather than um, just having it be effectively like a, you know, a sanding process, uh, introducing a chemical that's going to react with the surface in a self-limiting way and allow you to refine that surface um, in, in any number of ways, maybe it, maybe it's a more controllable fashion, maybe it's more efficient, uh, maybe it produces less solid waste and allows your you know your your, your vibe processing line to be be cleaner and whatnot. You know, so there's a there's a range of reasons you might consider it, but uh, it was you know as like a lot of interventions are kind of something he just stumbled upon, um, and you know over the course of about ten years we pivoted almost entirely away from from alkaline cleaners to this being what we what we do now, um, and, and it's been. From the from my time in the company, it's, it's all we've done. Like we don't we don't do anything really to support the plating industry anymore. We don't support any of the decorative applications, you know, with the the U.S. penny or things like that, which is something that was a big part of our past. It's, it's crazy. I mean, you, you, you evolve so much as a company, um, it, but it's been you know it's been a really u- unique journey. You started with a lot of decorative applications, and you know, we still do a lot of that. It's still a very big part of our business. We do all of the pre knuckle comb plate uh, finishing for like snap on. Um, it's only black and decker here in the U.S. still, but. You know, over time, that, that technology was recognized as it might have benefits in other applications. You know, if the first sort of, I'll call engineered applications were uh, bearings and airfoils um, back in like the late 1980s. From there, we stepped into gearing. Um, of course, where do you think that started? Racing, because racing will try anything. Um, and it worked out pretty well. And, you know, kind of now it's, it's still a big part of our business. And we just really evolved from there. Um, gears is still probably the, the biggest portion of our overall business. Um, we do a lot in the, in the helicopter, vertical lift takeoff uh, industry for power transmission gearing. You know, anything where there's a really, you, you want to increase margins of safety um, or you want to have things like, you know, longer loss of lube operation for helicopters and whatnot. That's a, there's an advantage to the process. Um, and that maybe, you know, kind of dovetails in a little bit into in additive because aerospace is kind of how we got pulled into, into additive. Because obviously aerospace was an early adopter in, in the metal additive manufacturing area. And so talk, we'll get to the additive piece in, in a second, but like paint a picture for me of kind of what, what does your factory look like and, and kind of how, how do these machines, like when, uh, when I step into kind of your offices, your, your factory, your facility, what do people see and kind of what t- sorts of parts do people send? Like what are the typical parts that you saw people send you in terms of size and what condition, like what are they looking to, to get out of it? Sure. Sure. Um, so yeah, so I, I should clarify. So obviously, Connecticut is our is our headquarters. It's our largest facility. We also have our Texas facility, which is our, our primarily our research and development center. 
Um, we've got a small facility in the Indiana area where we do uh, outsource processing for, for, for local uh, companies, primarily like, you know, off-highway, heavy axle, those sorts of applications just for proximity reasons. Uh, and then we've got a facility over in the UK, which we've used historically as our, our access to the European market. Um, we're in the process of uh, acquiring our, our German distributor to now you know, reestablish a European presence because of Brexit and all that. Um, but so each facility looks a little bit different, but there's some common elements. So, so with Connecticut being our, our headquarters, it's where we do the majority of our uh, chemical blending. Um, and it's where we do a lot of our, uh, if you will, kind of like serial production outsource processing. So we, we do, do business with two ways with customers. So we'll, we'll install technology at their shop floor, um, you know, depending on, you know, whatever their needs or applications are and, and, and what, what fits their, uh, their overall production scheme. And then we'll, you know, support them from the initial technical process design side, but then to supply ongoing consumables, you know, so the chemicals, the media and what have you. So, um, and, and I can, I can go to the process if, if it's interesting a little bit later, but um, so that's, that's one side. Another side is that people will send us parts and we'll execute that for them, right? So really it's, it's, it's kind of customer dependent. Um, you know, sometimes folks will do a bridge to installation. They'll, they'll process first, get comfortable with technology, let us sort of work out any, any, any kinks for their specific parts and then put it on in, in, into their shop. Um, or sometimes that's just, better for them overall. They don't want to make a capital investment or they don't want to take on the quality requirements, et cetera. So um, Connecticut has has all of that. So you have, you know, your, your, your large chemical blending takes, things like that. You have a relatively large job shop facility with, you know, range of vibratory bowls ranging from small, less than one cubic foot up to like, you know, 20 cubic foot capacity. Um, and you have warehousing and shipping receiving it. And, and we've got our, our office and we've got our accounting uh, situated there, just kind of the, the largest uh, facility. If you go to Texas now, you're going to have a lot of that, uh, but it's going to be in different sizes. You know, we're not looking to do production runs of chemical blending. We're, we're typically doing stuff just for our in-house uses there. Um, we've got a fairly large outsource processing capability there. So again, you're going to have a number of, you know, vibratory processing bowls, uh, but you also have some of the more uh, kind of experimental type of equipment. You know, you have drag finishers there, centrifugal disc machine, higher energy applications. And that's also where we have installed our, you know, some of our newer technology that, that comes along with the added side with some of the chemical polishing. Um, which is pure chemical. So you have some, some large fume hoods and small fume hoods because you, there, there you're, you're not utilizing this, you know, sort of uh, chemical mechanical type of application. It's pure chemical dissolution um, that we've done some customized work on and, and has some interesting advantages. Um, so that's, that, those are kind of the, you see just similar flavors, but, but different applications and, and a bit broader. The UK is very much like a, just a slightly smaller version of Connecticut. We've got to do a little of everything because they're doing a lot of the, the, the blending for the, for the continent there. And it's also doing some of the outsource processing. Um, and then Indiana would be sort of just like a, a, a bit more of like a smaller version of Texas and that they're not doing any of the R&D. They're set up just as a production shop. So they've got, you know, like 15 different, uh, like relatively large vibratory bowls there. And they just run to specific set processes um, and very much more, you know, kind of like serial production type stuff. Um, whereas Connecticut and Texas, you have some of that, but by and large, you've got a lot more variety. You're, you're seeing a, a, a wider range, sort of higher mix, low volume applications coming through there. So I imagine there's quite a few variables in the process, right? Like there's the the chemical piece, whatever the chemical composition is. I assume you kind of match that up to the material. So if material X doesn't like particular solvent, that's probably good for you. And so it helps with the the, the agitation part, but then I'm guessing you have the media and shape and frequency or kind of the, whatever, how fast you're mixing or kind of density that you're mixing. Um, are there others that are kind of like from a, from a recipe perspective, whenever you get a new part in kind of, what do you think of, think about in terms of, of modification to your process to, to meet the customer's needs? 
Yeah, so it's a good question. So, and it, and it varies a bit depending on whether we're talking about sort of like you know, traditional little subtractive manufacturing industries, you know, where you get like a, you know, a ground uh, component versus on the additive side. Additive, that's kind of with everything, simply has a bit more complexity to it. So we'll, we'll talk about non-additive first, then we can switch over to additive. Uh, but yeah, you're 100% right. So in general, um, like process chemistries, whether we're talking about the, the chemical polishing or the chemical mechanical polishing, are typically alloy mats. Sometimes it's alloy family. So like some like the the lower stainless steels, you know, 17.4, 15.5, you know, 3.04, those will all work in basically the same process chemistry. As you, as you then step up some of your chemical resistance and whatnot, because we're, we need to react with the surface, right? So chemical corrosion resistance, et cetera, creates a little bit more challenges. So as you step into like a, a 3.16 or you get into some of your super alloys, you're getting into different type of compounds. Obviously, you know, carbon steels, very different chemical formulation than titanium. So, um, that is one of the, it's a good thing and a bad thing about technology. That we're, we're, we're very specific in that regard, um, which means that you're getting a fairly tailored solution when you're working with us. But the bad thing is that like, if you've got a new alley we haven't worked with before, okay, might, we might be able to figure out something quickly. We might not, right? It might be a fairly involved undertaking um, to develop it, especially, again, if you're carbon steel, it's probably not going to be too, too hard, right? But you're getting into like these super alloys, these high hydrogen resistant type, high temperature or refractories, those become more challenging and typically a, a bigger effort to develop a capability set there. Um, and again, like you, know, you said, talk about media. media. Media is very much dependent upon part geometry. So um, we've got a fair degree of expertise in terms of knowing how to match that. You know, so I'll, I'll draw a, a gear as an example, right? The thing you're typically looking at with the gear is uh, what's your root diameter, um, how tight is your diametral pitch, because you need to be able to have uniform contact on the entire flank, because you don't want to alter that profile, right? That's one of the things that sets us apart from like traditional abrasive mass finishing is we can maintain geometries to a much higher degree. You know, you're talking like critical aerospace gearing, you know, it's a couple of microns of, of plus minus from, you know, tip to root there. Otherwise you're throwing in that tolerance and you're having other sort of issues, which you, you obviously can't, can't deal with that. Um, you, know, you, can't, you can't just pull over an airplane uh, you know, the side of the road, so to speak, right? We don't, we don't mess around with that. So it's very, very important there. Um, the more you do something, obviously, the, the, the better you get at it. You know, we're, we're very fortunate. We've got a lot of really long-term employees. I think our, our average tenure on the sales and technical side is, is north of 15 years. So we've got a lot of really great knowledge. Um, we have a, the, the job now, as, as a lot of folks do, we're trying to get a lot of that knowledge, uh, you know, codified into work instructions and databases and what have you. Because, I mean, you do have, uh, with, with that great long retention, you also have an aging workforce, right? So, so pulling folks on, that's something that, that, we, that we're, we're actively working on and actively dealing with. But um, yeah, there's, there's some elements to the recipe. Um, simpler applications, you know, simpler, simpler to react materials, things we've worked with a lot. You know, you're really not talking about, about uh, too difficult of a, of a spin up. You, know, you can go from, you know, first, first lot processing to production, you know, easily in about a month's time, um, you know, for you know, a lot of these traditional applications. On the additive side, where we've got a lot of incoming variability relative to, you know, quality and, you know, even, you know, printer to printer or maybe even print to print, you're typically trying to establish some broader boundaries uh, with those process parameters, you know, for that, that process control, that manufacturability. You're not often able to make that quick of a transition. But, I mean, fortunately, additive not typically looking that quick of a transition uh, as they go from, you know, prototype to, to production anyway. So it, it works out okay. And so tell us the story about how, how did additive come into kind of the company's purview what what was the the start there yeah it's, it's, it's a fun story so um we got contacted uh by calram actually um who was doing a project with with northrop and some other folks uh, and wanted to know if we had the capability of service finish uh tie 64 so we were like oh yeah absolutely i mean we've been doing tie 64 you know air engine compressor blades for, for 20 years so, so no problem 
Um, we were maybe a little flippant in that response because these were TIE 64 EVM components, right? And we were used to, you know, precision milled components coming with probably a 16 to 24 micro inch RA. Um, so when these, these bars came in that looked like kind of like, I don't know, honing tools or something, we, we, we were a little shocked. Um, and some of my R&D guys like, well, what do they want us to do with this, right? And I'm like, well, let's just, let's give it our best effort. Let's see what we can do. So, um, you know, in a traditional, uh, what we call sort of like, a, like our ISF process, which is like what we use for precision components, you're talking about a couple of ten thousandths of the material removal, you know, typically, you know, maybe four or five, ten thousandths per surface. That was not going to work with this, you know, 1600 micro inch RA uh, TIE 64 uh, fatigue bar. Um, so it took us quite a while using some of our traditional technologies, but ultimately we were able to get to a, a decent surface finish. And as luck would have it, it performed really well on the fatigue side. And we, we kind of got interesting questions back from, from the folks. It was like, you know, it doesn't look that great. It, there's surfaces that seem better and brighter and smoother, but yours is performing better. Why is that? Um, to which we said, well, well we don't know. Um, but uh, that's information that, we, that we're very happy to have. And, and we'll, we'll look a little deeper into this. Um, and so at that point, we sort of kind of backed in and said, okay, what, what is this whole additive manufacturing thing? Is this something, clearly our traditional technologies are not going to be the right solution because you, we can't have, you know, weeks of cycle times to get these things done for most applications, which it, I think it literally was a couple of weeks of, of processing to get where we needed to go on that one. Um, so digging into it, kind of understanding, you know, the concept of, you know, at the time it was sort of more of like a near net shape application and, and, and seeing how much of an issue roughness was. We said, well, this is probably going to be something that's going to be important for us. Um, this was probably about the 2010 timeframe. Um, and so I, I wasn't, wasn't CEO at that point in time, but I was, I was working a lot with the, the sales and the R&D team and overseeing operations and sort of said, hey, let's, let's spend some money on this, right? So we, we, we pulled on um, an, an R&D guy who spent about 50% of his time just you know, looking into ways to how can we how can we cut these cycle times down? How could we deal with this and focus really heavily on on, on titanium? And that's really what kind of opened up this this chemical polishing, um, you know, which is really just it's just a derivation of chemical milling. We're trying to make it a bit more precise, a bit more focused on um, you're remediating some of those those micronaut features on the surface, flattening the surface as much as possible. Um, you're really really getting rid of that granular roughness that you see in those powder bed type components, um, and that. You know, fortunately, we, we had some good success there. We, we, you know, we really probably over the first five years, that's probably what we did about 90 percent, which is TIE 6-4. Um, and and you know, built a little bit of a reputation there, you know, got in, got in some technical publications and, and some conferences and you know, started to be recognized as you know, someone that maybe you could look at for a certain finishing solution. Um, and, and around that time, that's when Dr. Diaz came on board, who, who's now you know, our lead AM scientist and, and really, you know, at this point, you know, kind of been it recognized expert relative to both, you know, surface classification of AM surfaces and this, this chemical or chemical mechanical polishing. And, um, you, know, you know, from there forward, we've, we've, we've really expanded a lot. It's, it's, you know, it's gone from being something that we just did, you know, a bunch of fatigue and pencil bars for probably the first five to seven years to now it's a, it's a meaningful part of our business, one of the top 10 industries that we work in. That's awesome. And, and so as, as the additive um, industry kind of matured, or not, I mean, it's not mature by, by any means yet, but kind of were there kind of, how did people find you? I, I guess, like, what were the, like, was it word of mouth? Like, was it particular, like, hey, like E-beam and tie, like, there's not that many people looking around. So like, did you talk to other people? Like, what, what was the the start of that kind of part of your business from a, like just a growth growth standpoint, right? Like as a, as a, as a business, like you're trying to grow this new, new part of it, kind of what was your strategy to, to, to grow that, that particular sector? 
Yeah, I mean, we were fortunate to trade on some of the reputation that we had, you know, with the traditional aerospace type applications. So, you know, we, we had some like, you know, the, the Pratt and Whitney's of the world and folks like that reaching out to us for projects. And, you know, they were in, they were in their own qualification perspective at that point in time. So it was, it was a good fit. They weren't looking for us to just, you know, give them a plug and play solution. They wanted to do a little bit of research. They wanted to understand how the service finishing process would affect things. Um, and, and that was, that was really what, what we did a lot of. We started once we, started seeing some of these, these, these technical benefits. Um, that's really where we always benefit. I mean, if, if we don't, if we're not giving it you know, a technical benefit, it, we're, we may not be the right solution. You know, in, in some cases, yeah, we can give you some cost advantages. It's typically not as simple as, oh, it's cheaper. It's normally it's going to be like a total cost of ownership or a total manufacturing process consideration. So it's not like, you're not just, you're not coming to us just kind of as a drop in, right? You come to us because you had a reason, you need a solution or something. When we started seeing some of that, we started going to the, the traditional like route of, of, of some trade shows, looking to get involved with some like the technical committees and things like that. Um, and we were lucky because the additive industry is, it's really vibrant in, in that space. I and mean, it's really open. You've got a lot of, you know, present presentations of, of new technology and research that is truly new and novel and actually is something that's more than just, you know, I've, I've got a new machine tool or whatnot. You know, it's not, and I love the gear industry, but it's not like that. I mean, and, and understandably, it's been around for 80 years or more. I mean, it, it's very mature. Um, you're coming on board with a new technology like us, you know, even though we've been doing it now for 25 years, they're still kind of with the new technology. And a lot of people look at it it's like, oh, why do I need it? You know, I can grind it. You know, I can adjust some other things, you know, like, like, like face width or things like that. And I, I don't, I don't need it. Right. So like, unless you, you really want to have a new design, folks aren't looking for us there. Whereas an additive, there's a, there's a definite need, right? Everyone's trying to figure out how to make parts and how to make, you know, higher criticality parts and what have you. So it's much more openness to that. And that really, it just it yielded uh, a very nice environment for networking with technical individuals, you know, engineering leads and what have you in, in, in both the government and in, in the private sector. Um, and just you spend enough time with folks, you, know, you gain some credibility, you work some projects, and you can get a nice little flywheel effect going. And that's kind of what we're, we're seeing right now. The tricky thing is you don't get forecasts in the additive market like you do in the traditional marketplace, right? So we're always, we're always fighting that battle of like, man, we got, got a pretty big project backlog here. So we bring some more folks on. We're always kind of juggling that. We're probably always being a step or two slow on, on, on adding staff in that regard. But it's, it is a nice dynamic in the AM space that you do have this, this open technical exchange and this real incentive, I think, from people and a desire from people to want to share information, you know, at least to a degree and, and advance the industry overall. And you'd mentioned in kind of some early kind of correspondence that um, SBIR and was, was a part of that strategy as well in terms of like you have your core business that has been established around for 20 years, additives a little bit new, and you've got kind of a foothold. And then there's even other research or other types of areas that you want to explore and kind of augment with the, the SBIR pro- program. So for those who aren't familiar, I just I actually just uh, submitted my first SBIR Two weeks ago, so <laughs> having gone through that very process, very nice. Congratulations! It's, it's not. That's a not, yeah. It's a, it's an undertaking. It's not trivial. So, um, so maybe just take a step back and kind of tell people what it is and then how it, how you guys approached it and kind of how it's worked for your business. Yeah. So, so for us, I, I really can't speak highly enough of it. It's been it's been huge for us. So because you know we're, we're not like a super small company, you know, we're about, about 60 people across four locations. Um, you know, we, we've got some solid existing revenue streams, you know, we're, we're, we're profitable. So we don't need SBARs necessarily to survive, right? We're not, you know, waiting for that next seed funding round, like a lot of entrepreneurs are and what have you. And, and, and that's, you know, listen, that's a route that people can take, right? It's, it's, it's a challenging one for sure. Yeah, I, nothing but respect for folks that are doing that. 
Um, but I, I mean, it must be tough because you can have these lags between submission to award and what have you. And it, it's, I mean, it, it's, it must be a tough dynamic for, for us. Winning SBARs has been the vehicle by which we've been able to expand our technology offerings. And I mean, really, we wouldn't be doing half of what we're doing today without them. Um, so in that sense, I think we're, we're a great poster child for that. Um, you know, we talked about, you know, Ty was the first thing that we, we had some success with. We had some pretty good legacy capabilities uh, in Ty from the subtractive market. Um, it wasn't something that was a massive part of our business, but it was a capability that was there. We had very little in, the, in, in regards to addressing like super alloys, you know, so Inconel 625, Inconel 718 and what have you. I mean, we've done a little bit here and there, but it was not, it was not a core competency. Um, and so just, you know, through some of these, this, this networking and, and, and being a part of the industry, technical exchange and whatnot, we got connected up um, with, with Paul Gradle from NASA Marshall. I know you, you, you've interviewed a great guy, really, really advanced in the industry and, and really doing a lot of good stuff. Um, and so he'd seen some of the presentations, he'd seen some of the data with, with the titanium. So he's like, hey, this is, this is great. I got some Inglis 625. Can you, can you do it for that? We're like, well, we'll give it a try, but I really don't think it's going to be a great result. And so we did a little bit of, you know, small projects with him. Um, and it was enough, he had enough directional belief in it that, you know, we, we found a, a, a cyber call that was, that was a general fit for our technology. And we were fortunate enough. We, this is back in 2018. Um, and we won our, we won our first cyber. It was a phase one, just solely focused on Inglis 625, trying to find the, as we call it, the optimal finishing technique. And we weren't, we were initially focused on just our, our, our technology. We looked at electro polishing, looked at like standard chemical milling. This is, we were still kind of early in our chemical polishing days at this point. Um, and then of course our, our traditional kind of chemical mechanical type type applications. And ultimately we, you know, we kind of coming out of that, it really sort of validated what we thought was maybe what we needed to do was sort of a combinatory approach where, where applicable, where we will do like that chemical polishing type application to get maybe like, you know, 60 to 80% of that roughness reduction you're looking for, get rid of a lot of maybe that, that granular surface, maybe the contour zone, you got a lot, of, a lot of porosity packed in there. And then if you need more, then you move in that chemical mechanical finishing, where now you can, you can flatten out some of that waviness that's on the surface that you don't see in subtractive parts and what have you. Um, so that was, I mean, that was a great experience for us. It was, as, a, as I'm sure you know, it, it was quite an effort to get all the, all the paperwork side and the documentation side um, and, you know, just, just understanding how to do those things because we hadn't done any of those things. Um, coming out of that one, we said, hey, this was really successful. We want to do more of this. Um, we, we brought in a guy who had worked at NAFC for, for a while running their cyber programs. And, and it, we couldn't do it without him, without question. I mean, navigating those, those waters, it's, um, it, it's, a, it's a big thing. Um, but fortunately, we, we've gone on. So like that, that, that phase one went to a phase two, which expanded our capabilities then to have 718, a little bit of Haskell AX. Um, and some novel alloys that, that NASA's working on, JDK-75 and NASA HR-1. But there's some side projects on some of their copper alloys, GR-COP-42 and GR-COP-84, um, which at that point what, wasn't a sieve or just some, some IRAD and some, some P-card work and what have you. We, we, we knocked out some, some solutions there relatively easily. Um, at that point, we were really bought into Sibiris. We started looking into what, what AFWorks is doing. I really like the, their open call submissions that they have where, you know, it's, they're, they're relatively small, you know, $50,000, three-month sprint, which is, you know, it's a lot to get done in that time period. But it allows you to put out premises for a company like us, who's it's a little bit more niche. Not, not, there's not a whole lot of Sibir calls that are like, give me a surface finishing process for this talent, right? <laughs> but with $50,000, like the Air Force will take a lot of shots if you can sort of convey a, a, a potential mission need. So we've done... Uh, we did a phase one focused on some Luma 661 RAM 2 material from Elementum, just because we thought it was an interesting novel material, maybe an alternative to the LC10 mag, which is so predominant. That one went on to a phase two with some additional aluminum and titanium alloys. We got a direct to phase two uh, on some Inconel, which is more sort of like almost material offset, like sort of process design strategy focused. Uh, we got a phase one recently on, 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 on GR COP, looking to optimize that one, mainly for like channel applications. It's really 
I mean, probably, like I said, at least 50 to 60% of our, our revenue that we're doing in AM is coming from the results of those process developments that we've been able to do, which we wouldn't have otherwise funded. I mean, I'm not funding speculative million dollar investment projects. I'm, I'm not that big, right? You know, taking, taking 50 to 100K shots is kind of a big deal for us. You know, we typically only do that if we've got a very defined revenue case at the back end of it. Um, but with Sibri, you don't have to do that, right? You can take these shots. You can build out these these data sets that you don't otherwise uh, have the funding to do. I mean, I'm not, I don't, I'm not generating a lot of fatigue data in my subtractive industries, right? Customers are doing that. And maybe they share it with me in a paper. Maybe they don't. But by and large, you know, everyone's duplicating it. I can generate data sets in these sibers, right? We can do these things that we can then publish ourselves and go to conferences. It's really been, um, it's been a big, big part of, of, of where we uh, are past to getting where we are right now. Um, and the other part of it is, it, I mean, it's, it's putting you in the room with people who are decision makers in, the, in, in these platforms, you know, like Paul, like Dr. Benedict with AFRL. And um, it, it, it just, it opens a lot of doors as long as you can do a good job with, with what, you, what you say you're going to do. Sure. And so going back to the, the, some of the technical requirements of, of some of these projects. So you put it through your process kind of, can you talk a little bit about how do you measure success? Like what, what's the actual kind of process of, of measuring surface surface area? I've seen kind of profilometers and things like that, but like for some of these additive parts, they're complex shapes. So kind of what are you looking at in terms of um, look and feel and then quantitatively measuring some of that? Is it just fatigue or is it other surface finish aspects it, it could be a challenge um so so like kind of like looking at it like first from like the, the traditional industry space i mean you can normally like if we're qualifying a process we're going to have a, a a set cycle time that's going to deliver a set amount of material removal and it's going to if we if, if we have a known starting roughness we're going to be able to deliver you a no, known final roughness and we'll develop that as a part of like some qualification work and what have you and because i mean those are super mature processes from the manufacturing side like what's coming to us there's generally not a lot of surprises, right? Like that's, that's got a high manufacturability yield, like you're, you're good there. On, on AM, it's different, right? You're not generally going to be able to guarantee a final roughness unless the source of the parts is extremely locked down and extremely controlled, right? Because there's just, there is just more variability in the AM process. There's a lot more going on, right? You're not coming with from, you're not taking bar stock or, or what have you that's then going through a, a, a machine. You're forming that bar stock and the shape, and you're doing all that at once. I and mean, there's a lot going on there. Um, so we are typically dealing with uh, applications. So there's, there's, there's typically, typically one or two things that, that we're working with. Either A, we're working to like a sustainment type component, a replacement component where there's a print spec that we've got to hit, right? Um, thankfully, a lot of those print specs are coming from casting type stuff. You know, so your roughness is not all that stringent, right? It's like, like that, you know, 125 micro inch, you know, 3.2 uh, micron RA finish. That's normally pretty doable as long as uh, we've done the upfront work with the, the customer to uh, develop what the material offset requirements are going to be. So with enough material, you can normally get to whatever roughness you want. As you get to some of these more complex geometries, maybe it's channels and things like that, that doesn't always, you don't, you don't always have to have that luxury, right? So that's where it gets a little bit trickier. Um, so we will, we can have you know, roughness call up as, as, as the back end. We don't love RA. We don't love it in the traditional industries. We, we love it less in, in additive. Um, you know, SA would, would fall into that, in that same camp, but it's, it's what everybody kind of knows, understands. Um, and it does give you some, some directional information. Um, Dr. Diaz would, would, would talk to you about, you know, need to look more holistically at, at like surface texture. Uh, and there's not necessarily one parameter that you need to consider there, right? Because an additive, 
you can have a surface that uh, will have like, let's say a, a relatively low R rate, you know, let's say, you know, less than a, you know, kind of 63 micro inch, you know, kind of two micron type range, um, a little less than two micron range, kind of a good machine surface. And that surface can perform horribly for fatigue because of the forming process that you did to get that polishing, maybe with a purely abrasive process, maybe you didn't address any of those sort of surface discontinuity micro notches. Because at, at, at a certain point, the angle of your surface valleys, if you will, becomes impactful for those fatigue applications. On the other side, you can have a surface that is, looks, looks like a very, very clean, very, very wavy surface. That's gonna have maybe the same RA, maybe even higher RA, that can significantly outperform that comparative abrasively processed surface. And that's something that we've seen in some of the projects that we've done. So it's a, it's a difficult space for, for us, it's a difficult space for like the design and the manufacturing engineers determining how you specify what, what you need. So coming away from like the, you know, hitting your sustainment or hitting your legacy print type applications, what is the benefit you're looking for from the surface finish becomes the next question, right? So if it's fatigue, okay, we've talked about some of those things. Realistically, the only thing I can tell you for fatigue right now, if, if you need a specific surface finish to achieve a specific fatigue life, you need to validate that process. And you need to lock in that process. And it's going to have to be managed from a quality perspective by, by a fixed process, engineering revision control and what have you, because there's not right now enough of a data set out there to be able to correlate this surface with this, these roughness parameters from this type of process to this surface that's from a different process that might even look very similar. Like electropolishing is a funny one for us. We, we, we've been a part of a no, number of studies. It makes a nice surface. It doesn't have a significant fatigue benefit in the studies that we've been found, even with comparable material removal amounts and comparable roughnesses. And we don't necessarily fully understand that. I don't think anybody does right now, but it's, it, it's a challenge. Um, other, if you're looking at for flow, if you're looking at for cleanliness, then, then, then there's different things you can consider there. Um, but so to come back to your, your original question, so like, you know, what, what are our quality deliverables? How, how are we controlling that stuff? I mean, it, a lot of it is, is fixed process control. We need to, we need to de determine what the parameters are that are important for final product quality, and we need to make sure we, we, we monitor those in process. Um, we need to have agreed upon material offsets, um, and we need to have good control on the customer side of, of them controlling what they're sending to us. Because um, you really do, unfortunately, see even, you know, print-to-print -print variability. It's not as if every single one is the same. You get, you know, we'll, we'll run into issues with folks who are not maybe as experienced in the additive industry that says, oh, well, no, no, the, the, print, the print guy said he used all the same parameters. Doesn't mean it's the same. It, it, I, I wish it was. It unfortunately doesn't. Because I also use all the same parameters. And I can tell you that, okay, your, your overhanging surface here, they're a lot worse. They were, they were not particularly dense in this going. You must have had something go wrong. Don't know what that might have been. But you got to look into it. So it, it is a challenging space. Um, and, and I think that's for that reason, I think a lot of the, the places where we're seeing a lot of use is in the, the ultra challenging applications whereby there's a, there's value there to justify it. Yeah. And I imagine too, like, so when I think of your process, I think of in the context of an additive workflow, it's like a, it's a post-processing step, but the reality is if you know that that's your end goal or that we're going to put it into this treatment. There are certain decisions that are likely that would be better informed by a design or a materials engineer or mechanical engineer that's designing the part and how it's going in the build and the powder qualities and the parameters. If they know it's going into your process, there are things, there are probably do's and don'ts that you want, or things that will make your process more effective, so to speak, right? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, the, the biggest one is material offset. I mean, a, a lot of times folks maybe won't think about 
they're going to need to do some post-processing or they can get away without it. And then you'll come in at the back end and they'll have, you know, I don't know, maybe a, maybe 25 microns, maybe thousands for you to take off. And they're, and they're looking to, to take it from a, you know, a relatively high roughness, you know, in, in the hundreds of micro inches to something, you know, near single digits. That's generally not going to work. It's just, you know, physics and things like that. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Chemistry doesn't work that way. Not, not for the additive parts. It's just, you know, if you, at a certain point, you know, if you're looking at your, you know, your RZ, which is typically your average kind of max peak valley, if that's bigger than what my material offset is, I'm, I'm not going to be able to get you the result you're looking for, right? So, so at a basic level, yeah, thinking about that, that material offset is, is super important. Um, it, we love, uh, I know why people don't like using it, but we love micro X-ray CT scanning. We think it's, it's super valuable because, you know, with, with these pyrovis processes, you, you do tend to have, you know, a concentration of, of, of porosity, even though these are very, very dense parts, you know, they are, I, I truly believe, you know, 99.9% plus, if you're going for, for high, high finishes, you know, low roughness surfaces, you know, a single pour can throw you out, right? So needing to know where that accumulation might be, how deep is that, right? Is it 100 microns in? Is it 200 microns in? Is it, is it more than that? That is very helpful for us in terms of, well, we don't need to do a whole lot of stop and checks, right? I, I'm not checking your part after 50 microns in material removal. If I know I've got this nice X-ray CT scan here that shows me you're going down to at least 150, that makes development easier on our side. And it also avoids, you know, we, you still, because we are a chemical process, right? So you still get people saying, oh, what'd you do to my part? Well, we, we, yes, chemicals can overtack a surface, but they typically can't overtack one surface. If they're all destroyed, yeah, maybe we did something wrong, right? But if just one looks bad, I'm going to tell you, it's probably a printing parameter dynamic and you probably had some subsurface issues there. So um, that's probably the biggest challenge that we, we, that we deal with in trying to understand that is, you know, how much material do we need to remove to get the surface that you're looking for um, and why are you looking for that surface? Because maybe you've got a legacy call out for a certain roughness, but maybe you're, you don't actually need that. Are you going to be able to test that in a, in a live fashion to determine that, you know, what we can produce here within your, within your design offset limitations, is it going to work for you or not? These are all things we got to juggle. Um, when, we're, when we're kind of getting these new projects off the ground. So you're really in a unique space in the additive world where you get to see a lot of different industries, a lot of, a big spectrum of users from a post-sophistication, amount of money invested, the amount of research they want to do or can do. What are your general observations of the industry kind of as it's, as it's become a bigger part of your business over the last 10 plus years? Ooh, that's a good one. It's a tough one there. I think there's, I think there's a lot uh, to unpack there. Um, I think you've got, uh, I think you have a, a broad range of uh, sort of approaches and, and, and experience bases in, in the AM space, um, which is which is good. That means it's still, it's still growing. You still have people coming in. Um, maybe it's sort of a little bit in recent years. We've seen some of the consolidation, but I, it's still a very vibrant growing industry, which I think that's, that, that's good. Um, I do think I kind of made reference to it earlier. You do have some folks who come in and think that um, added manufacturing, you know, laser powder diffusion, electron beam, whatever it might be, uh, that's just a machine tool. And it's not just a machine tool. It's, it's more than that, right? I mean, you're, you're doing more things. You know, you're, you're forming the, the, the sort of the, the, the stock material as you're also forming the shape and you're, you're doing a lot of things. Um, you're, you're doing different maybe heat treatment processes you don't maybe do for the traditional places that it's high aesthetic pressing or what have you. So there's some learning curve elements there. Um, I certainly don't envy any of the folks who are, who are, who are diving in maybe on the small business side and trying to make this a core part of their business, because I think the, the knowledge set you need to have, uh, to be, to have the expertise and like the, the capital equipment investment, I mean, it's, it's sizable. You're not just tiptoeing into this. You need to have some big backing, um, to do it, to do it well and to do it right. 
Um, and, and I mean, I've, I've known folks who honestly had great knowledge sets and just, you know, at a certain point, the, the, the CapEx is a problem. Um, unfortunately, a lot of those guys just worked out for them. They've, they've, you know, kind of been absorbed into larger companies and what have you, and it's worked out really well. But I, mean, I think that's a, that's a big thing is, you know, your f- funding and the knowledge background has, has got to be there. Um, and I think you've got some, some challenging economic aspects as well. I, I look at a lot of the, uh, like the independent print shops, you know, the, the manufacturing centers and what have you. Um, it's tough, right? They need to deliver to specifications, um, but they also need to make money and, and, and money is time and, and time and the machine and quality often can be a trade-off, you know? So it's a, it's a, it's a hard space for them to be in. Um, so I, yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm happy where I am in it. I would not, I'm not looking to dive into, <laughs> into that world uh, any, anytime soon. Um, you know, love working with all of them. And, and generally the good thing is that I think all, almost everybody in the industry is very, um, you know, open and it's not, uh, it's never like really a, a blaming dynamic, right? If something doesn't go right, if, if, if things don't hit expectations, you know, normally we're doing a nice root cause analysis. We're trying to find out where, where things could have gone better. Um, I, I do think that there's, you know, a, a, a lot of development that's still going to come in terms of you know, the, the machine control, the parameter control, the institute monitoring, you're seeing a lot of it, you know, you're seeing some, a, a lot of push in those areas. And that's just going to be good for the industry overall. And ultimately it's going to make, it's, it's going to narrow some of the, the, the scope of work, what we do down some, which is going to be a good thing though, because it's going to make more things more controlled, more repeatable. And it's going to be a, a, a broader application set there than, than maybe what we have right now. So maybe one final question. So kind of going into 2022 or a couple months in, um, what industries or what's kind of exciting and that's on your radar from a, a company perspective this year? Yeah, so Adam's really fun in that because it's, it's pulling us into areas that we 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 hadn't been uh, before. You know, fully fully novel. It's also making some things that we we did a, a while back new again. Um, you know, so uh, like 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 a cool like kind of like what we used to do and it kind of went away and I was coming back would be like kind of like hot side airfoil applications. I mean, that was something that we did a lot of in the '80s and that went away because you had you know other other technologies that were there. Now it's additive. You're designing these really complicated like cooling channel applications in the blades and what have you. Well, there's not a lot of things that can get in there, right? Well, that's one of the things that we've been pretty successful with. Um, with some of our chemical polishing applications. And that, that really dovetails into like, you know, what I think we're probably the most excited about, what we probably talk about the most is like the, the, the space, you know, the, the, the rocket engine applications, both with NASA, um, you see some growing interest on the Air Force side and then commercial space. We did nothing in rocket engines four years ago, right? You know, now it's, now again, it's, it's one of our most important industries. Um, you know, it, it, and it's cool because the iteration um, from, you know, just concept, you know, to you're talking about, you know, simple coupons and, and sub-size specimens to, to full-size hardware is really fast, especially within the commercial space, you know, some, some of the, the newer market entrants, um, you know, and it's, we'll work with, with some companies who, you know, have a bit more slower methodical approach and, you know, we might spend, you know, 12 months going through a whole lot of just test specimens and building out, you know, uh, material databases and what have you. Others will go from, couple of test specimens to determine some material offset amounts and you know approximate what surface finish we're going to look like and the next thing you know we're 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 blowing our chemical polishings through cooling channels of you know 15 inch tall uh, rocket engine components and they're getting hot fired three months later you know so that's that's really fun that's really vibrant um you know just to be a, be a part of that industry obviously i think a lot of people think space is pretty cool being, being even play a small small role in, in that which which we do is uh is really something that, that that's fun it kind of goes beyond just the business side and it just you know it's cool to Cool to tell your kids, oh yeah, like we, you know, we're working with NASA on that, or we're working with that company or this company. So that's that's really rewarding, and, and we like that a lot. Um, and, and there's other you know, stuff that is, is we've never thought we would we would have been in. I mean, we're 
We're doing some work uh, with MIT on like, you know, unique plasma fusion coupler applications. Didn't know what that was 12 months ago. You know, now, not that I really know now, but I just know a few words enough to be dangerous about it. Um, you know, semiconductors, right? The semiconductor industry is really gravitating into AM and it's super interesting. And I, I don't, I can't say I understand all the reasons they're looking for it. I understand a few of them in terms of part consolidation and complexity that they can do and can get better efficiency in these things. But um, they're really put, pushing limits. I think we'll see a lot from them um, in the next, you know, 12 to 18 months in terms of both you know, pushing for new alloys and, and pushing for adoption of these new complicated designs that are, you know, really pushing the limits. I mean, you're, we're seeing channel applications in the 200 micron range, right, which is really challenging. Um, but if they can do it, and, and, and if it works off, there's, I understand there's a lot of benefits from a cooling perspective, whether it's on, on hot, on cool plates and things like that. So um, I don't think we're going to be uh, bored or, or uh, have any issues with, with cool new applications coming out of the AM space uh, anytime in the near future, um, which, you know, it's good. It's good for everybody. I think, I think it'll keep excitement high and it'll keep industry growth high. Um, cool. Well, Justin, thank you so much for joining the show today and uh, look forward to seeing you at some of the upcoming shows, maybe AMA, Rapid, you know, in the coming year, coming months. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks, Mike. All right. Take care.